local news now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. It's an overcast gray day here in Kamloops. There was some light snow falling when I made my way to work. Doesn't look like it so much anymore, but you can sort of feel the snow in the air. Uh, exciting show in front of you, of course, as everyone knows, this is a big day in provincial politics in the Nanaimo by-election. If the Liberals win, it's going to un- uncork basically a whole can of worms. Uh, we're going to talk about that with Kamloops South MLA Todd Stone, who's in Nanaimo this morning. We'll also talk about this whole Huawei China-Canada tensions rising thing uh, with uh, an interesting article out of the McDonald laurier Institute and the, uh, and the author behind it, Ivy Lee. And we'll finish off the show talking about wetlands preservation uh, but we're going to start the show, as we always do at this time of the week, with uh, Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian and our weekly Civic Update. Good morning, Mayor. How are you? I'm great. Good to be here, Shane. Is it Mr. His Worship? I'm always confused about the etiquette. You, you can just call me Ken <laughs> Christian. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about, uh, it was another packed council meeting. You guys are might be getting used to this by now. Uh, but uh, the big issue, or one of the big ones, was this whole thing of Mac Island pitting uh, the naturist versus um, this disc golf idea. You guys voted to allow disc golf into the park as we look at what we're doing with this old nine-hole golf course that was there. Uh, but surprisingly contentious and, and, and bitter argument from some quarters. What's your take on this whole thing? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, this originally was uh, Bill Bilton's property, a nine-hole sort of executive course, 17 acres at the west end of uh, MacArthur Island, uh, formerly a sewage lagoon and garbage dump that he reclaimed, and then he let the lease go, so we were faced with what to do with it, uh, had a lot of consultation in the community, lots of different ideas, uh, put those in a hopper, and uh, eventually our parks department uh, looked at a multi-use plan. They went and researched that uh, in other similar parks around British Columbia and brought forward a plan yesterday that includes uh, 18 holes of golf, uh, a naturalist area, a riparian area, uh, some honey pollination, uh, mini golf, uh, a lot of uh, sort of placid areas for, for contemplating and that sort of thing. So that was what was debated, a 5-3 vote from Kamloops Council to accept that plan. Now, uh, going forward, we need to find the money to do that. So uh, it would be a three-year phase-in. Uh, the first year, we would uh, get it uh, kind of back and uh, away from the fencing that's around it now. Hmm. And then we would look at adding some of the amenities over the next uh, two years after that. Uh, and these will show up in our supplementary budget uh, uh, deliberations. Okay. Uh, and we'll touch on budget deliberations in a sec. I stumbled across a Facebook post about this, a group of people <laughs> a little unhappy with the city, and I'll just uh, read the title to you here. The city of Kamloops Parks and Recreation, taking the parks out of the city at breakneck speed. Uh, they're citing the disc golf decision, the outdoor ice rink winter idea at Riverside Park, the possibility of a public market at Riverside Park, which, by the way, is not a given at this point in time. But uh, your reaction to, to that kind of a sentiment? Well, first of all, uh, you know, don't dig too deep into Facebook to get your information. <laughs> you know, I think that there's a lot of trolls out there, and and uh, you know they they seem to be sort of harping on the same themes. But uh, you know there are lots of opportunities to interact with the Parks Department, with City Council, and and uh, get the facts as we understand them. Uh, you know, uh, people always accuse us of not listening, and I I've always suggested that there's a big difference between not listening and not agreeing. And I think yeah. what happens 
is uh, people have a decision go away that they didn't anticipate it and then they accuse us of not listening or the parks department of sort of having a predetermined plan or something. Right. And, you know, I think we have to get past that. The level of civil discourse in camps is kind of sinking a bit and we have to work hard to, uh, you know, keep this about the facts and keep the emotion out of it. Uh, unfortunately, with this particular uh, situation, it dragged on quite a while and uh, certainly uh, the numbers of emails and very rude emails that, uh, you know, were received by myself and other members of council, I think, are, uh, you know, indicative of the fact that we really really need to step out, step it up a bit. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, before we get into some other matters, I'm kind of curious. Uh, last week at this time when you were here, we were at the very uh, beginnings of a story where we eventually found out later in the day that two men had been shot in what police are calling uh, organized crime-related targeted shootings, two hotels uh, uptown and over in Valley View. Um, just curious, A, if you've heard anything from police in the last few days or received any assurances that uh, that things out there are evening out or there's not any kind of crazy situation involving public safety or anything like that. Yeah, we were briefed yesterday by uh, Superintendent Leckie and the inspector in charge of operations and the lead investigator on this matter. Uh, it is, again, uh, you know, a police matter, so, you know, we, there's limited information that we can provide other than to say that we have additional officers in Kamloops uh, working around the clock on these two murders and uh, that they believe them to be targeted. So, you know, from that perspective, uh, if you are involved in the drug trade, I mean, if you're using drugs, you're at risk because of fentanyl and carfentanil. And if you're selling drugs, you're at risk because of uh, turf wars in and around, uh, you know, gangs. And so, you know, we have to be very uh, clear that the general public is not at risk, but uh, these are uh, situations that if they get out of control could pose a risk. So the police are uh, on it, and uh, I uh, am satisfied with the uh, degree by which they're treating this matter and uh, the extra resources that they are bringing in from around British Columbia. Is there any real concern for you or any kind of responsibility there? Is there anything the city can do? Because I've, I mean, I'm not going to make any direct comparisons here, but I mean, I have seen in other communities when I was down the lower mainland how severe gang warfare can be. It can drag down the reputation of the city. You have some bullets flying around eventually, you know, the possibility of somebody completely innocent eating a bullet while they're watching TV or whatever uh, comes into the conversation. So is there a concern there that, that we do have some nasty characters in the city doing nasty things? And is there something the city can do to kind of begin to head that off, be it through the RCMP or on its own? Well, I mean, that's what policing is all about, right? But, but it's very difficult to predict, you know, where and when these kinds of things uh, would occur. But uh, covert intelligence is really uh, what they uh, operate on. And uh, that's what's happening in Kamloops right now. And, you know, uh, it's uh, our job to make it uh, an unhospitable environment for uh, organized crime. And, and that's what uh, we continue to do. You know, we had a spate of gunplay about a year ago, and then it sort of faded off. Uh, yeah. and, and now we've had another... You know, spate here, and and it's just totally unacceptable by anyone's standards. But uh, you know, is it uh, you know a risk to live in Camels? I don't believe so. Yeah, no, and I don't believe so either. But uh, it is a concerning situation and one that every city, I think, to some degree, deals with. Um, tomorrow, a budget consultation. You guys are heading back down the track to figure out what uh, property owners are going to pay. I'm still pushing for the uh, the uh, media rate at uh, just half a percent, but uh, apparently that's not going very far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the special Shane Whitford rate. Yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, but uh, we are uh, starting on the process of, of looking at our supplemental uh, budget uh, li 
list. And so uh, these are items that have been brought to us uh, from uh, area associations, members of the public, those kinds of things, as well as from departments. Uh, there's a number of asks that uh, the various departments have. And so those will be laid out by our finance department and there will be uh, some suggestion as to how they might be paid for so it's not necessarily all from taxation there could be gas tax money climate change money those kinds of things uh, involved so we take a look at that and then we consult with the public as to uh, you know just re uh, uh, checking with them about these are the things that they value as priorities and uh, then we look at whether they're going to be in or out uh, as we proceed down this road to setting a uh, tax rate uh, do you anticipate it's going to be well attended or what it's the sort of gauge right now from public interest I know sometimes the meetings are well attended and sometimes it draws flies I don't, I don't know what your sort of gut sense is about tomorrow night but. Uh, yeah and uh, it's um, uh, really uh, unknown uh, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, last one uh, totally surprised me. It was a full house at, at uh, MacArthur Island and uh, uh, lots of really good engagement uh, from the people there. Uh, so, and other times, as you say, it's kind of crickets. So, uh, you know, we'll wait and see what happens. Where and where and when for people who are listening? Uh, I believe it's next week and I believe it is at the Valley First Lounge. Okay, next week. Yeah. Pardon me, I thought it was tomorrow. Uh, okay, uh, last question on the cannabis front. Uh, nine stores and counting. I believe a couple more are heading to Council's Way fairly soon. What's your sort of sense here I mean, obviously a brand new industry. I assume that over the course of a period of time, we'll have some market fluctu fluctuation and it will ultimately determine, you know, what kind of number of stores are viable. But what's your sense of how things are rolling out? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, again, CAMOPS is just a little ahead of the curve. Uh, some other uh, communities uh, were probably waiting and then they'll license 20 at once, uh, whereas we've sort of, you know, working our way towards 20. But, uh, you know, I think uh, what we're seeing now is uh, a number of of different people with different uh, ideas in terms of marketing recreational cannabis and so it's just uh, like uh, people that would be marketing pizza or marketing uh, craft beer so uh, as that rolls out some will succeed some will fail and uh, I think that was discussed yesterday when we uh, talked about uh, a congregation of these seemingly on Tronquil Road uh, and whether that is the same retail landscape a year from now who knows. Um, one last question on this I mean obviously we're still I don't think we're, we're anywhere near a full rollout. I mean, a lot of the stores, even you guys have okayed, yeah. have not been given provincial approval and opened up their doors. We still have essentially the one store up the hill, the government store. Uh, but as we work towards, I guess it's going to take a, a year or more yet, but when, when we get full rollout, um, any concerns on the sort of the public use front and the bylaws and, you know, someone strolling down uh, down Victoria Street and big clouds of marijuana smoke, any, any concerns in that sort of area yet or no? Well, I mean, that, that was the speculation, but that really hasn't proven to be true uh, with the uh, limited uh, supply that we have now, but uh, I don't see that as a problem. I think uh, marijuana users are fairly responsible and that, uh, you know, this is just going to be a new normal that we're going to see in Kamloops. And uh, if there are issues, uh, we have with each of these licenses good neighbor agreements so that uh, if we see a congregation of people smoking in front of a retail place, that retail place will not be open. So that's not part of the agreement so uh, they have to look after their customers and their customers behavior and uh, as such not disturb the neighborhoods where they're located are you a black widow or a red kush man <laughs> <laughs> spinach <laughs> 
All right. Kamloops Mayor going green, but not that kind of green. Ken, thank you. Always a pleasure, Shane. <laughs> Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. We'll take a quick break, and we'll turn our focus to that uh, crucial Nanaimo by-election. Uh, Kamloops South MLA Todd Stone next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. As we all know, uh, Nanaimo, uh, people in Nanaimo are going to vote today in a crucial by-election. If the Liberals pull out a win there, it's going to uncork a whole can of worms, potentially posing a threat to the Horgan government. Uh, our own Kamloops South MLA, Todd Stone, has spent a fair amount of time in the last few days in Nanaimo, canvassing, door-knocking, that kind of thing, joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Todd. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm doing well. Okay, well, here's the big question. I mean, I know obviously uh, you have a skin in the game and you want your guy, Tony Harris, to win, but uh, what's your sense of the riding this morning as we uh, enter into E-Day? Uh, without question, it is uh, too close to call. Uh, I mean, I, I, that's probably not what uh, what you or the listeners back home want to hear, but uh, it, you know, the NDP uh, have a machine uh, like, uh, like no other on, on Vancouver Island. Uh, they're pouring their heart and soul into this. Uh, unions have come... Uh, far and wide to uh, to help out their candidate. Uh, we have uh, approximately 300 volunteers out uh, today. Uh, if you just think about that, a little sm- small army. Uh, we're pulling out all the stops to do what we need to do to push our guy over the finish line. Uh, and I really think it's a two-horse race between uh, between us and the NDP. So we'll uh, we'll, we'll know uh, once the polls close at eight o'clock. But uh, it sure is exciting. Yeah, I bet. Okay, so uh, one of the issues in that riding, is, as you well know, is a packed ballot. you got six candidates on there, all the major parties. Um, if it's too close to call and it's going to be a tight race between yourselves and the NDP, then every vote counts. Is there a concern that, that votes could siphon off to, say, a B.C. Conservative Party or maybe even uh, the B.C. Greens that could potentially harm uh, either you guys or perhaps the NDP going down the stretch? Well, I think that's always a concern. But at the end of the day, uh, as, as you know well, you've covered lots of by-elections in your career. Uh, the by-elections tend to be uh, uh, t- completely focused on local issues, and and that's why we often see uh, uh, you know uh, uh, upsets happen. Uh, candidates uh, with parties that haven't won in in places uh, for long periods of time uh, suddenly find themselves elected. Uh, our guy uh, Tony Harris is uh, has been uh, completely focused on uh, the issues that are really important in Nanaimo. The, this is a community that's ro- growing quite quite rapidly, just like Kamloops. Uh, it, it, they've got lots of young families moving in, lots of seniors, uh, people retiring in the Nanaimo area. Uh, so there's pressures on schools, there's pressures on the hospital. Uh, it, there's, a, there's a growing tech community. You know, the community is really transforming itself. So there's a lot of, of uh, pressures that come with that. Tony's been talking about what needs to happen to uh, to to manage that growth, uh, as opposed to uh, you know uh, being all hung up on, uh, on 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 negativity, which has been the the playbook of the NDP candidate. So uh, I think he's going to win. Uh, I think it's going to be really close, uh, but I think he's going to win uh, because he's focused squarely on uh, local issues, and and he's saying to the folks in Nanaimo, uh, uh, I I am the strongest voice uh, uh, to to represent you in Victoria. Uh, just out of curiosity, some of the bigger, I mean, obviously local issues, as you say, are dominating the doorstep perhaps, but any idea whether uh, the speculation tax with uh, the potential to sort of bite the NDP is in play within the riding or perhaps uh, the the legislature spending scandal, could that have an impact potentially against your party? Uh, any of those sort of headline-grabbing issues are going to be a factor at the end of the day in Nanaimo or no? 
Well, the, the last poll that I uh, was knocking doors in uh, uh, was uh, a poll that, that the BC Liberals lost by 20 percentage points in the last provincial election. Uh, there were there were a whole wide range of issues mentioned at the doorstep, but uh, the ones that were most prominent, yes, the uh, uh, the uh, the Plekis report uh, issues came up, but it was uh, in the context of you know could you please uh, all work together and and acknowledge there's enough blame to go around and please just fix it you know clean up clean up the mess uh, plug the holes uh, uh, ensure there's the accountability and the transparency in place wasn't uh, so much pointing the finger at us or the NDP or it was just you guys are all there. There's 87 MLAs. Please fix it. Uh, we, we heard uh, from lots of people uh, about the spec tax, people that are um, just, just feel that they've been singled out. They don't understand why Nanaimo is in the spec tax zone, but uh, Parksville Qualicum uh, uh, isn't. Uh, uh, the Comox Valley isn't. Uh, it, it just makes no sense, and, and people feel like they're being, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're guilty as speculators until proven, uh, proven innocent. Um, but interestingly enough, another issue that kept coming up was uh, in this particular poll was people want uh, want the uh, the TMX pipeline uh, to be built. Uh, they want uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, folks in this in this particular poll that actually work on uh, major infrastructure projects and you know fly uh, fly up to northern BC or into Alberta to do so. And uh, they want the certainty to know that there's going to be projects like uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, for them to work on in uh, in the years ahead. Uh, as you look at this riding, and again, we're into E-Day now, uh, there's, all, there's all sorts of indicators along the way that, that may signal. Are you, what's your read of, of as far as you guys obviously looking to get your guy in? Uh, any of those indicators, any of those signs that are mostly positive, or is there still sort of a mix of signals out there right now? Well, again, the poll that, uh, that, that I just mentioned, uh, we lost by 20 points uh, only uh, 18 months ago. And uh, we, we had about half, half of the folks were home uh, through, through the day. And, and uh, of those that were home, uh, yeah, it was about 45% uh, indicated support for, for our guy, Tony Harris, uh, many of whom uh, either hadn't voted uh, in recent elections uh, or you know, hadn't voted BC Liberal uh, any time uh, re- recently, uh, if ever. I mean, remember, Nanaimo is uh, is a riding that has only uh, not voted for the NDP once uh, since uh, uh, since 1972, I believe. Twice, twice in 50 years. Yeah, so uh, 1972 is the year I was born, Shane, and I think only once since then have they uh, have they elected a, a, an MLA who wasn't with the, the NDP. So uh, it, we, it's an uphill battle uh, for sure. But the community is transitioning, uh, uh, and uh, we certainly are feeling that on the doorstep. Uh, I, I, again, I, I think uh, we're gonna gonna pull out a squeaker here, um, but uh, you know it's not gonna be. Uh, easy, and we just have to work as hard as we possibly can, which is what, what, why we've got so many people on the ground, and we're pouring so much effort into this. And it has huge provincial implications, as uh, as you, you've, you've been mentioning uh, yeah. as well. Uh, last question to you on those provincial implications: uh, Should your candidate win, uh, every every pundit in the province is going to spend weeks pouring over the tea leaves to try and figure out what happens next. Uh, uh, from you, if the Liberals secure the riding, forty three, forty three in the legislature, should that happen, uh, does that imperil the John Horgan government and, and mean an imminent election? To or no? Well, it, you know, we're certainly not going to go in there on day one uh, uh, looking to bring down the government. Uh, you know, I think our, our first step will be uh, to make it very clear to John Horgan and the NDP Greens that uh, they better start paying attention to uh, the party that has the most seats in the legislature, and that, that would be us, and we, we have the most today, but we'll have 43 tied with them. Uh, so you're not going to have a single BC Liberal voting for any tax increases. Uh, we're going to want to get rid of the spec tax. We're going to want to, uh, you know, get rid of the uh, the EHT. We're going to want to, um, you know, we're, we're going to remain true to our to our values and our principles. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, bills have to go into uh, what's called committee stage, as you know. And in committee stage, uh, the NDP will have to put up the deputy, uh, assistant deputy speaker ha- half of the time. When that happens, we actually will have 43 votes, and the NDP Greens combined will have only 42. Uh, so we could frustrate uh, their entire legislative agenda in uh, in committee stage. And uh, and that, it probably more than anything else, would... Uh, would, would result in, in uh, there, there being a provincial election sooner than later. But again, I don't think anyone wants a provincial election tomorrow. They want us to, uh, to work together, but that means uh, the NDP and the Greens are going to have to meet us, meet us uh, in the middle on, uh, on a bunch of stuff, which has not been, uh, not been their practice for the past 18 months. All right, we're out of time, Todd. Uh, appreciate the time, and uh, all eyes are going to be on Nanaimo this evening, and we'll certainly see how it plays out. And of course, with you on, uh, on the island, maybe it's a chance to grab the Nimkish on your way back home. <laughs> little inside joke there Todd thank you sir appreciate it thanks Shane Todd Stone Camelot South MLA there discussing uh, how his uh, feeling is in Nanaimo crucial by-election people there voting today we'll take a quick break on the Woodford show on the other side we're going to talk about this rising tensions between Canada China involving the US and the uh, cellular firm Huawei Radio NL RadioNL.com local news now Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back. Tensions rising between Canada and China all over the uh, detention uh, pending extradition request from the United States on a senior executive with the uh, Chinese telecom company Huawei. Uh, and a score of sort of ripple effects from that. Uh, an article from the McDonald Laurier Institute caught my eye called Huawei, a risk that Canadians definitely can't afford. Uh, it was written by Ivy Lee, and she joins us now. Good morning, Ivy. How are you? Good morning. Thank you. I'm good, and thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Uh, okay, Ivy, uh, first question is, um, do, do Canadians, and more importantly, does our federal government truly understand how communist China and the government there works and how Huawei meshes in with that? And if we don't understand th- how, how that works, is that an alarming failing on our part? Uh, yes, I actually think that... Um, our government in general, I think, have, um, doesn't understand the true nature of the Chinese Communist Party that well. And in our dealing with them, very often uh, we have a, a little bit more naive uh, uh, way of approaching with them. And if we don't understand the, the real nature of uh, the Chinese Communist Party and how they think and how they operate, particularly their United Front work, which is their propaganda machine. And we put entire Canadian society at risk because they, um, they have been very systematically and consciously infiltrating our society and trying to influence our decision-making in, in their interests. So as a, dem- uh, a democracy, as a democratic country with our... Uh, values, which is very uh, centered on civil liberties, human rights, and the democratic system and aspiration of our citizens as a nation. And if we do not understand how they operate, we are easily being eroded, and they try to bring us over closer to their value system and their thinking. And so that is so important that we understand what Huawei really is 
and the relationship with the Chinese ruling party and how we actually have to deal with China and companies like Huawei. Uh, the Trudeau government uh, has been I don't, probably non-committal is the best description I can come up with uh, to the question of blocking Huawei from our 5G networks. Um, what's the concern from your side if if Huawei does in fact uh, get a foothold in, in the 5G networks in, in Canada or in the United States? What's the concern here? Right. To talk about what would happen if Huawei becomes part of our 5G network, we need to understand the relationship between Huawei and the Chinese Communist Party first and what Huawei really is. The Chinese intelligence law says all organizations and citizens must support, cooperate with, and collaborate in national intelligence work. It means in China there are no true privately controlled companies. And if we take a look at the founder of Huawei, he was a People's Liberation Army engineer for two decades. The, uh, and then we take a look at the reaction of China to the arrest of Man Wan Zhao, which is a CFO of Huawei and the eldest daughter of, Ren, uh, of the founder. And it, they arrested two Canadians immediately afterwards, and it clearly indicates the close ties between Beijing and Man Zhao and the importance of Huawei to the ruling party. And then we also take a look at what Huawei is doing. Huawei is working with the Public Security Bureau in Xinjiang on their surveillance system, basically helping the Chinese government in the cultural genocide of the Uyghur people. And then at the same time, the technologies of the surveillance technology, the techniques and the experience that they developed and perfected domestically are being exported internationally to strengthen other authoritarian regime. That means that they will undermine the global development of free and open societies. So, and then at the same time, we take a look at the 23 charges from the U.S. government to Huawei and Manwan Zhao, that it would include like bank fraud and stealing technologies. Um, and it shows us how Huawei likely operates outside China. So if we, in, in, if we look at Huawei, it is not a company that would shy away from helping dictatorial governments to suppress citizens or to use questionable business practices. So under this kind of um, operations, then if we let Huawei into our 5G network, um, at least it has three very serious consequences. The first one is we will, we will be giving the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, the power to spy on our daily lives on our own Canadian soil. Now, 5G is considered the foundation for realizing the full potential of the Internet of Things because it could be 100 to 200 times faster than 4G. When 5G is fully rolled out, it will be in our phones, our computers, our office devices, uh, home appliances such as uh, refrigerators, our electric cars, our neighborhoods. It will be in our shopping malls, public services, and government agencies. So 
It means no Canadian who wants a normal life could opt out from the 5G system. If Huawei equipment is used in our 5G networks, we will be stuck with our daily lives with the CCP. We will be giving an authoritarian regime the power to keep track of our government and our daily lives to spy on what we have said and done in our own country. And the second very serious implication mm-hmm. that we'll be giving the CCP an immense power to control Canadians who have business or family ties to China. Right now, a large number of Canadians have family ties or business dealings in China. The fear of the safety, uh, the safety of their loved ones uh, or fear of reprisal on their businesses have already induced widespread self-censorship among them. If Huawei is in our 5G network, just knowing that there is a possibility of being closely monitored in daily life by the Chinese regime would be enough to cause many more Canadians to change our behaviors and it would silence many more dissenting voices. So if this happened, it will bring irreversible damage to our democracy and freedom of speech. So here's here's a question for you, Ivy. Um, obviously, uh, in Canada, the United States, any other sort of uh, major economic country in dealing with China, there's a diplomatic tightrope to walk there. Uh, in the last few years, uh, a lot of the lobbying... Uh, over democracy and human rights concerns have taken a backseat to um, the desire to gain access to the Chinese market uh, and then its role as sort of a world economic power. Um, how do how should countries like Canada deal with China considering all the concerns you just outlined? Well, I first of all, I think that we needed to have a real, reality check is that after all these years, uh, we kept saying that while China is a huge market, no one can afford to miss out on that. And after all these years, we, our, our trading relationship with China is that we only have about 4.3% right now in 20, uh, according to 2017 figures. And we have a trading deficit of 36.5 billion. And that is after all these years of effort. So it's because China has a very um, uh, strict and um, policies to preventing foreign investment and foreign companies to get a foothold into China's own domestic markets. This is a reality we must wake up to. And so even from the economic side, we have to rethink our China strategy because the the old one, the traditional one that we've been using is not working. It's not bringing us any economic benefit so far. Then, but at the same time, with this Huawei incident and the way that how China treated our two Canadians being arrested mm. is under arbitrary detention. Uh, they trump up any kind of national security uh, threat to anybody that they wanted to detain or arrest, which is their common tactics. Um, and we can see after, after so-called we are, we are having a friendly relationship with China, when they are angry with us, they will immediately just trash everything 
and then they will do whatever they like. So it tells us one thing, that if we are dealing with China and trying to separate trade from human rights, uh, at the end, we are not getting either one. Hmm. They will, it will come back to haunt us that we are ending up is helping a dictatorship to get stronger and stronger to a point that they actually have the ability and the power now to come back to attack our democratic system. That is actually something that is very, very alarming. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Uh, Ivy, we're, we're out of time. I'm afraid we're going to have to let you go. But uh, I want to just thank you for taking a few moments to try to explain that. I think it's a serious issue, and I think it's one that, uh, that people need to take a little bit of time to get their head immersed in because it does pose, I think, a significant risk. But uh, thanks for taking a little bit of time to chat with us. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. That's Ivy Lee. Uh, she wrote an article for the McDonald Laurier Institute uh, called Huawei, a risk that Canadians definitely can't afford. Uh, give it a read. I put it out on my Twitter account. And, of course, if you listen to that interview, then I think you, know, you get some sense of the, how the seriousness of that situation. Take a quick break here on, in, on, uh, on the Woodford Show here on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll talk about wetlands preservation. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. It's time to talk about wetlands preservation from the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Their Rocky Mountain Area Director, Richard Klafke, joins the program. Good morning, Richard. How are you? Good morning. Good. Excellent. Uh, this Saturday is uh, Wetlands Preservation Day. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, why uh, the preservation of wetlands is so crucial. So in British Columbia, the Nature Conservancy of Canada has been placing a priority on conserving and restoring wetlands and conservation areas across British Columbia. Um, they are really important for uh, everything from absorbing runoff during floods and drought, uh, storing water during drought conditions. Uh, they help filter, and the plants associated with them help filter the excess nutrients, toxins, and even bacteria from, from drinking water. And they're also a really important area for, for storing carbon in the soils of the, the wetlands. How much, of, how much of the wetlands, any idea how much we've lost uh, due to uh, development and whatever else in the last little while, either directly here in B.C. or across the country? Well, they say that wetlands in southern Canada um, are being converted at a high rate. Um, we've probably lost over one-third of our our wetlands where the data is available uh, in southern Canada in the last since 1900 and you know considering they provide all these great ecological goods and services and are really important for wildlife and ecosystems and waterfowl and everything from elk and deer that um, you know people consider sometimes these these areas as unproductive sites but they're really biologically important and ecologically rich so they are important for both you know, benefiting people as well as wildlife. As far as the NCC is concerned, Richard, what uh, what are you guys working on as far as preservation, sort of in the immediate area here? So, in the in the Rocky Mountain Trench lately, on a couple of our conservation areas, we've really shifted focus on into restoring wetlands that were once uh, like abandoned hay fields or an old uh, defunct gravel pit, and so we've been focusing a lot of efforts on trying to create some some wetlands where it would really benefit the local the wildlife and also some of these areas um, 
there's a real potential for, for floods and uh, during excess runoff and extreme events that we're facing more and more with climate change. So creating these, these wetlands have been really, I think, beneficial for being able to absorb these big runoff events and help reduce the chance of flooding along some creeks and streams and some other areas along highways. And so by doing that, we're not only uh, improving the wildlife and the, the fisheries values and the waterfowl, but we're also helping to reduce the potential for, for extreme flood events. And then, like I say, also on the opposite end, during dry times and drought, they're really beneficial for having that storage of water for, for wildlife and, and people to that extent. As far as, as wetlands preservation itself, I mean, obviously uh, your group is doing some good work there, uh, well as uh, doing some other work on a number of other fronts on, on the preservation and conservation side, but um, what's the role of developers, municipalities, um, things like that as far as, you know, municipalities obviously are responsible for a chunk of the land. Um, how how is is there an education component? Is there a responsibility there to okay, we're expanding, we're building, we're doing stuff, but we need to preserve and protect this because we now understand how important it is? Well, I think people across BC are recognizing more and more the importance of of wetlands, especially in the in the face of changing climate conditions that that we're seeing. And so I think just uh, the public in general and other organizations across BC, local governments, First Nations, I think everybody's increasingly recognizing the importance of the role of, of wetlands and having having them somewhat conserved and even restored in, in certain cases. So I think we're going to see more of an increasing focus on how, to how important really wetlands are across BC and across Canada and, and really around the world because they are still being, you know, converted or drained at a, at a high rate. So it would be nice to shift that focus into conserving some of these wetlands for, for future generations. Uh, as I mentioned, World uh, Wetlands Day is February 2nd. That is this Saturday. Uh, is there something people can do to take part or as far as raising awareness? Uh, what's what's the NCC's take? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of events happening on Saturday across D.C. and you can always visit uh, the Nature Conservancy website to see if there's any programs being offered in your area where you might want to come out and volunteer uh, you know, I know the lower mainland where there's no snow and it's a lot warmer. There, the wetlands are open and uh, people, there's still a lot of wildlife wintering there. So that's the, uh, a great site to, to visit is www.natureconservancy.ca. And what about people who happen to own uh, wetlands areas? Perhaps they want to uh, will them or seed them over to uh, groups like yours to make sure they're preserved. I assume that's an option. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, we run these natural area conservation programs and every site across southern BC has uh, uh, identified natural area. And quite often, you know, a lot of these private land uh, sites where there's wetlands, they, they definitely, when we rank the, the priority sites, um, that definitely adds uh, high value to the scores. And so, yeah, any sort of interest in that would definitely go a long ways in, in um, working to conserve those wetlands because we do face more of a priority on on these sites do you think people are cognizant of of february 2nd being world wetlands day or, or no well i think it's a mixed bag i think people are you know it's winter time and and so i think in a lot of canada people aren't so aware of of the uh, of the wetland day world wetland day but i think generally there is an increasing uh, awareness of the importance of wetlands across across north america and the world so um, yeah, I think it'll be a, a good weekend for, for wetlands. All right. Uh, Richard, say, uh, thanks for taking a few minutes to join us and talk about uh, that important topic. Really appreciate it.
Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, that's Richard Klafke from the Nature Conservancy of Canada. As I mentioned, this Saturday is World Wetlands Day. As you heard there, he outlined uh, how important uh, those wetlands are and how fast they're disappearing. Uh, so a chance to kind of put that on your priority list uh, this Saturday, February 2nd, World Wetlands Day. That's it for the Woodford Show today. Uh, we'll see you again on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 1230 Merritt, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 610 AM. Local news now.